0: This is How to Read. I'm Milan.
1: And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Leah Price, a literary scholar who focuses on the history of books. What's happened to reading during the COVID-19 pandemic? Some people are too busy or stressed to read, while others are reading more than ever, but in different ways. Leah Price is interested in historical precedents for what we're experiencing now, from anxieties about catching diseases from library books to the fantasy of reading as refuge from the world. History shows that reading is affected by people's working lives. Some can't read because they have to work. Others read because they can't work. COVID-19 is transforming the way we work, so reading too will change. But not necessarily for the worse.
0: Leah Price, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me, Milan.
0: So we are recording this um, in August 2020. So the COVID-19 pandemic is ongoing. Um, People are still, you know, uh, in many places, sort of, you know, confined to their homes or at least can't move around and sort of, you know, live their normal lives. So what has been the impact on books um, of the, the COVID-19 pandemic and how people's you know lives are now?
2: So um what we do know is that in the early months of the pandemic, in the early weeks of lockdown, book sales dropped. And the majority of book sales in the US are either through the large e-commerce company to which I do not want to give airtime or through brick-and-mortar big-box stores like Walmart. Early in the pandemic, many branches of those big-box stores roped off the paperback racks in order to prioritize what they considered essential goods like toilet paper and lentils. Mm. And it's interesting that in Britain... Waterstones, the bookstore chain, took some heat in the first weeks after the end of lockdown for positioning certain books back to front so that the back cover with the blurb rather than the front cover with the image was facing shoppers in order to let people considering buying a book read the blurb without picking it up and turning it around.
0: Mm. Mm. Right. Cause people might be worried about touching it physically.
2: Well, and that has been a real concern during the pandemic in a strange way. We seem to be going back to the kinds of anxieties about the book as a vector of disease. The book is a vector of contagion that spiked in the middle of the 19th century, along with the emergence of public libraries. So you had spirited debates about how long to quarantine library books when they are returned. And it's it's an interesting- wait, so wait, so
0: in so in the 19th century, people were quarantining books. Like every time someone returned it, they wouldn't just lend it out straight away. They would quarantine it like it was
2: diseased. So in the 19th century, some librarians tried to disinfect books and some of them actually invented a sort of fumigator for books that would bathe the book in carbolic acid or some other kind of disinfecting medium. And this also had to do with the fear that the new institution of the public library is causing richer and poorer readers to mingle with one another through Hmm. the book. So Hmm. if I'm a fancy middle-class person who borrows a book from the public library, do I know in whose dirty, grubby hands or household that book has been before me?
0: That's so interesting because like I feel like nowadays there's all these cliches about like you know literature bringing people together and so on and like actually thinking about like books connecting people, but in ways that they might not be particularly happy about, right? Like it can connect people that um, didn't necessarily want to be connected, say because of like diseases that that they imagined might be spread.
2: And definitely, you saw that also during the. 1980s, when some organizations tried to uh, borrow library books on behalf of HIV patients who were housebound and could not go to the library themselves, and certain libraries in the United States refused on the grounds that they did not want their books entering those households. So I think you're right that the circulation of books concretizes all kinds of fears about connection and contagion.
0: Mm.
2: I think there are also interesting questions emerging about the relation of the book to the home. I don't know whether you saw early in the pandemic that, One independent bookstore in Brooklyn uh, was selling a T-shirt or maybe a mask, I don't remember, uh, on which was written, stay home, read books. And another Mm -hmm. sold a T-shirt that said, stay safe, keep reading. And so the idea of the book as a kind of refuge from the dangers of interpersonal bodily contact. This is a very old idea of the book. There's a 19th century conduct book by a writer named Charlotte Young that tells girls, there are so many hours of your life that you must sit still, that a book is your natural resource. When you read a book, it doesn't Skin your knee. It doesn't get the. Uh, it doesn't get your clothes dirty, and so decorous, seated, indoorsy kind of thing to do. So, on the one hand, we have the book as a safe space, a socially mm. distanced activity. On the yeah. other hand, we have the book as a vector of disease.
0: Right, but also, I mean, just with it. The- I think it's maybe a little bit more, like, obvious to us now with that 19th century example of giving advice to, to women readers, but, like, it seems like there's something potentially quite moralizing about this, right? Like, stay stay home, read books. It's, like, accusing people who choose not to read books of spreading disease.
2: Or, of course, people who don't have the choice People whose work is essential, people who would lose their job if they don't physically venture out into the world. And I think you're right that mottos like stay home, read books do crystallize a kind of middle class, professional class, smug
0: superiority
2: exactly a sort of smug self-congratulation not just about the practice of reading but about the taste for reading Mm. that makes it a marker of class superiority confused with moral superiority
0: yeah i i mean i think that's 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 so interesting i you know books can seem like such like um, inert objects, but then actually the, the people that are kind of interacting with them, that's, that's such a like human side to books.
2: Right, and that might take us back to your original question about what's happening to reading under COVID era lockdown, because if you look not just at when and where people read, but also at who reads, In general, in the developed world, the people who read the most are women, children, and old people. So it's everyone who is withdrawn from the paid labor force. Reading Mm. is what you do when your time does not have cash value, because reading (laughs) is really a question of opportunity cost. And now, during the pandemic, we see new times that are being made available to reading at the same time as for certain kinds of essential workers, there is clearly a lot less reading time available.
0: Yeah. So that's, I mean, I feel like you're really shifting my perspective on the well, just in that, like, the sort of stereotypes of reading as, like, Feminine. It sounds like you're saying it's not because of anything to do with, like, femininity inherently, but actually to do with, like, whose who's time is, like, paid versus unpaid, who's, you know, valued as a worker versus who is not. Is that right?
2: Right. So, so that from one perspective, you could claim that the housewife figure reads more because of characteristically feminine empathy and imaginativeness, but from the other perspective, you could say that that figure reads more because there is an absence of opportunity cost in the dedication to a book of time that could have been spent earning money. And
0: So I just, opportunity cost, I think I recognize that as a word from economics, but I don't 100% understand it. Do you mind just spelling that out?
2: So if someone who is in the workforce spends time reading, they are giving up on the opportunity to earn money. And this is one reason why historically we see rates of reading rise in agricultural communities where productive labor, paid labor is restricted by seasons and by daylight, so that if you're engaged in certain kinds of agricultural work during the winter, during the dark evenings, you can read around the fire. You're not giving up on any work time. Yeah. Whereas in a factory that can work no matter what year round, every time you spend time learning to read, every time you spend reading is time taken away from making money.
0: Yeah. I mean, even in my own life, I recognize that because like there have been times when I was working as a translator. And so it was work that I was just doing at my computer. I had like, you know, many many hours of work to do and could kind of arrange my time how i wanted so any time of day i could potentially be, be doing that translation work and so it sort of took over my life and i didn't have time for things like reading versus like when i'm teaching when that's my paid work there's like set class times and so then in the evenings there's no way of teaching and so then that's just after the question and then i have time to read
2: Well, that may raise an interesting question about how working from home will affect the of white collar workers, because I know that, again, anecdotally for myself, I read books at times and spaces where I don't have my laptop open. But these days, my laptop is always open and it's always (laughs) right there next to me.
0: So... Yeah, give, given the impacts that we've been talking about of you know, how COVID-19 has been impacting people's reading, people's relationships to books, um, what's one thing that you hope people will take with them after the pandemic is over, like to do with books, to do with reading?
2: I suppose I hope that people will take with them that very sense of the book as a refuge that I sneered at just a moment ago, I'm very suspicious of a tendency to use the book as a stick to beat digital media or social media with, to treat the book as a kind of not smartphone that can restore kinds of focus or attention or psychological depth that digital media threaten. So this is
0: the idea that kind of like, you know, the reading that we do online, the reading that we do on our phones, articles, social media, that that's kind of distracting us and fragmenting our attention, whereas like reading a book would restore that to us. Is that right?
2: Exactly. To my mind, the real contrast is not between print and digital media. It's between long-form, long-term reading on the one hand, and on the other hand, ephemeral, short-form snippets of disposable entertainment, whether those take the form of a 19th century newspaper or of 21st century social media. All that said.
0: Well, I just, I, I love that because then that also suggests that like worries about like the death of the book or like, you know, the digital destroying books. It's like, no, if, if what we care about is like long form reading, then that can survive as ebooks, that can survive as audio books, that can survive. Yeah, that that's not bound to a specific object that we call a book.
2: Right. And so I think the long history of the book gives us reason to be hopeful for its future.
0: Leah Price, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Milan and Olivia. That's it for
1: this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip in which Leah discusses what children's books can teach us about screen-reading fatigue.
0: To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milanta Lunen.
1: and by me, Olivia Branscombe.
0: With editorial assistance from me, Colby King.
1: And from me, Eleanor Roth-Hessen. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.